0: There was a book my wife and I read uh, a number of years ago, a book called Under the Overpass. It was written by a guy by the name of, of Mike Yankowski. Yankowski, uh, wasn't that the same guy from Monsters, Inc., something like that? But Mike Yankowski, he, he is a upper middle class kid, grew up a, a privileged kind of life, went to college at Westmont, which is a, a pretty prestigious school. And uh, so this guy who's got this good life, He's kind of wrestling with his faith, and he's like, I'm going to do something. And so for six months, in six different cities, Mike lived as a homeless person. He lived on the streets. He sat in the corner and begged for money. He had a guitar, so he would play his guitar. And it's interesting because this book is about his experiences where he lived for six months with no connection to mom and dad, no connection to any of his resources, simply living on the streets. And he said, here's... Here's some of the hardest parts of this experience. For six months, he endured so much social rejection, right? Sitting on the street corner, playing his guitar, and as people see him, they avert their eyes. Not going to look at him. Or they see him and they choose to walk on the other side of the road. Or maybe they would choose to walk by, and maybe throw a few coins in his little guitar case but not look at him or engage with him. In fact, he did this this for six months, and over a period of six months, only once, only one time did someone stop and say, hey, let me go buy you a lunch. Let me buy you a sandwich, and let's have a conversation. Six months, this dude lived on the streets, and only once did a Christian stop and say, hey, let's just have a conversation. Let me hear your story. Let me figure out how I can encourage you. why does it happen i think we would all acknowledge it is hard for us to engage or love or befriend people that are different with us especially people who appear a little bit messy that is incredibly difficult for us cuz so often what we do and this is our human tendency is we surround ourselves with people who are just like us we like to surround ourselves with people in a similar economic situation Or maybe you're trying to get someone with a higher economic situation, but you're kind of looking for that group. You're looking for people that have the same kind of morals in life, the same kind of goals, the same kind of values. You're looking for people who are smart and like the Seahawks and the Mariners over all those other teams. You like to surround yourself with with people that are like you. It's familiar. It's safe. And doesn't this happen in our Christian circles as well? I mean, as we desire as Christians to grow in our faith, to to be more in love with God, to have a deeper commitment to Jesus, man, it's so easy for us to surround ourselves with other Christians. I mean, just think about this. As a Christian, who who are your connections that you prioritize, right? Of course, we prioritize the church. The church is important. So we gather with Christians at the church And then we're in a small group, and we're gathering with other Christians in our small group, and we're praying for one another. But then look at who your closest friends are. Oh, I've got some Christian friends because I need them. They help me stay accountable. They help me live my faith, and they help me grow. And then we look, and we're like, well, my hobbies, I really enjoy hobbies with other Christians because that guides our conversation, and we have these things in common and then all the Christian things we have, right? We've got Christian schools, we've got Christian music, we've got Christian soccer leagues, like all this Christian stuff. And as Christians, what do we do? We flock to those things because those things feel safe. Those things feel comfortable. I mean, when we, think about, we think about Satan and, and the negative worldly influence, and we're like, man, if we can just surround ourselves with, with, with Christ and the church and Christians, man, we'll be safe. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But quickly what happens is we get ourselves into these Christian bubbles. We get ourselves into holy huddles where when we do see someone who's not a Christian, whose morals don't live up to the way that we live, who don't live out their faith the way that we think are expected, we almost treat that person like Mike Onkowski on the street. Oh, I can't befriend that person because they're a sinner. They're not like me. They're going to lead me to a place I shouldn't go. So what do we do? We avert our eyes. We walk on the other side of the street. We don't want anything to do with them because, again, we don't want that influence in our lives. Back years ago when I ran Madison House, Madison House was the inner city youth center. My wife and I had the privilege of leading for, for eight years. And one of the things we did while we were there is we had all these at-risk kids, and we had, this, we had this van, a 15-passenger van. So what would happen is on Wednesdays, I would fill this van full of kids who needed to know Jesus, and we would drive out to a church to go to an Awana program. Now, if you're familiar with Awana, it's a great program, teaching kids about Jesus, helping them memorize Scripture. And I'm bringing these kids who desperately need to know Jesus, and these kids are, are learning Scripture And then the leader of the Iwana program says, hey, Kevin, we need to talk. There's a little bit of a problem. And I'm like, what problem is there? And she said, well, Kevin, I I don't know what to do because there is about half of our leaders that say if Kevin keeps bringing those kids, we're gonna stop serving in Iwana. Why? Because those kids were rough. Those kids were sinners. They were invading the Holy Spirit huddle. And people were afraid of the influence that those kids would have on their good, holy huddle, Christian circle, Christian influence. Is that how God intends us as Christians to live? Will we create these separate little Christian communities apart from the world that are safe and comfortable for us as Christians? Is that the way that God intends us to live. See, this past couple of months, we've been in a, a series that we're calling The Story, where we're trying to see in Scripture, we're trying to get the meta narrative of Scripture. How, how every story in the Bible, every character, every command, these are not individualized things. They're all one big story pointing us to Jesus. So, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, all the way through Revelation, it is a cohesive story all pointing us to Jesus and what he's done in our place. We have been—we spent 19 weeks in the Old Testament, and today we're on the fourth out of five uh, uh, lessons. We're going to look at the life of Jesus. And as we look at the stories in the life of Jesus, we aren't necessarily trying to, in this series, trying to cover every sermon Jesus preached. We're not trying to cover every miracle that Jesus did. We're not looking at every event. We're looking at events and stories that connect Jesus to the prophecies from the Old Testament, be the Old Testament Messiah, and to understand why Jesus came. Today, the passage that Pastor Jake read for us this morning has huge implications for every one of us to call ourselves a Christian, and especially for our churches, and how we relate to the world around us. Because Jesus is going to model for his followers, he's going to model for us how we as Christians and how the church in general is supposed to relate to the world and to sinners. As we get started, though, uh, anybody know the three rules of real estate? (laughs) Location, 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 right? Oftentimes, it has little to do with the house. It's all about the location. And it's the same thing when we read Scripture. We can't just pull out a verse and say, look at this verse. You've got to understand the location, the context for where it is. So Matthew chapter 9, context of this, Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, right? The Sermon on the Mount was this this, um, phenomenal sermon that is setting him apart from the religious leaders of his day. He's saying, listen, what God is looking for is not just our external obedience to, to what God says. He's looking for our hearts. He wants hearts that are dedicated to him. And so, and so he gets through the Sermon on the Mount, and then Jesus begins to, to go around, and he's going to call his disciples. These are the twelve apostles. These are the guys that we see Jesus following uh, him for his three years of ministry that are going to carry the mission forward after Jesus uh, rises back up to heaven. And as as Jesus is seeking out these men, he's going through it. He's ministering to people in need. We see him do a couple of different miracles. He calms he calms a storm. He calms the waves. Uh, there was uh, a man who was possessed by demons, and Jesus cast out the demons to heal that man. There was a man who was paralyzed, and not only did Jesus heal him physically, but he also said, your sins are forgiven, which was outrageous. And all of this, all of what Jesus is doing as he's ministering in the, in the community, as he's meeting needs, is drawing a lot of attention. People are like, what is going on here? Who is this guy? And especially the religious leaders. They're like, wait a second. There's this Jesus guy who's talking about the kingdom of God. And he's claiming to be sent from God. And he's doing all these things that we're unfamiliar with. And so there's this attention and these crowds that begin to follow Jesus. And that is where our passage comes in today. I'll tell you what. We have a one-point sermon today. I don't know, no, I don't know if that's going to mean it's going to be short today or not, but we got one point to get through today, and that is Jesus came to seek the least and the lost. Here's, here, here's where we start. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax booth, and he said, come, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. So the context, we've got a dude sitting in a tax booth. Now, Matthew says this guy's name is Matthew. But in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, they tell the same story. They're parallel Gospels. So they tell this story as well. But they call this guy Levi. We're like, which one is it? Is it Levi or Matthew? Well, they're the same guy. They're the same guy. But the names are going to become important in just a minute. So keep that in the back of your mind. I'm going to refer to him as, as Levi, though. And so in Jesus' day, a tax collector was the worst job you could have. It would be like being a telemarketer where you got to call everybody and they just hang up on you. Or be like a weatherman where it's like, you only get the weather right like 10% of the time. Like, how can you be wrong 90% of the time and still have a job? Tax collector was a job. It was a bad job. The reason was, is Israel, they were occupied by Rome. They're under the, the rule and authority of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is known for their heavy taxes. That's how they built all the roads to connect the, the known world of that time. And so, a tax collector, they actually worked for the Romans. They worked for the oppressors. They sold out their people to work on the people to, to work for the people that are oppressing them. So already he, you're just, your people are mad at you. They don't like you. You sold out on us. And then the question is: well, well, why would Why would a guy like Levi, why would he sell out his people? Why would he sell out his ancestors for the Romans? Well, this is why. Tax collectors, they could add whatever they wanted to the tax that was in existence. They could add to whatever they want on top of it, and that's how they paid themselves. So imagine, imagine you've got your camel, and you bring your camel to get in, to get taxed by by the empire, and there's Levi, and he's like, all right, the empire says I need to charge you 10 bucks to tax your, 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 uh, your camel. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm also, I'm going to tax not just the camel. I'm going to tax the hooves on the camel. I'm going to tax the humps. And so instead of owning 10 bucks, you owe me 25 bucks, right? And so this is what tax collectors would do. They would overtax you, and they would take the profit for themselves. Think about this. The best way I can describe a tax collector is think about like the mafia or, or a gang, And how they extort people. They say you owe us more money. So tax collectors. These people are like the worst of the worst. In fact in Jesus day, They are so bad. That tax collectors. They weren't allowed to belong to the synagogue. They weren't allowed to be a part of a church like ours. Tax collectors. They weren't allowed to go into court. And give testimony. Because they were viewed as being outcasts. And untrustworthy. And bad people. So here's. That context. Here's Jesus, the holy man of God. Here's Jesus who's talking about the kingdom of God. And who is he going to call to be his disciples? Oh, of course he's going to call the religious leaders, right? Of course he's going to find uh, scribes and Pharisees. No, Jesus walks around and he calls this notorious sinner, this tax collector, Levi, and says, come follow me, you're going to be one of my disciples. See, this is outrageous. Jesus sought out the one man that nobody else wanted. Jesus sought out the one man that everybody else wished he would suffer the wrath of God for him being a sellout. Yet this is is the exact same person that Jesus says, I want you to come and follow me. You're going to be one of my disciples. We're going to go change the world together. And why would Jesus do that? Wouldn't it make more sense? For him to find a religious leader who's already got a spiritual life? Who already looks a part of being a good moral person? Here's the thing. God is so different than us. Scripture says that we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In fact, there was many, many years ago, there was a huge uh, block of marble that was brought into Florence, Italy. And the intention for this block of marble is they were going to, they wanted to, to, to carve it into a statue of some great Old Testament prophet. Super exciting. Yet several artists, including Donatello, not the turtle, they look at this big block of, of marble and they're like, it's too big to do anything with. It's too big. It's so big. It's going to be poor quality. There's nothing we can do with this thing. A couple years later, though, another artist comes along. And he looks at that block of marble and he sees beyond the size. And he's resolved I'm gonna turn this into something amazing. Three and a half years later, the artist gathered all the other world known artists and says, Hey, come guys, I wanna reveal what I've done with this block of marble, this despised and rejected chunk of rock. <laughs> and as the veil was dropped, there was astonishment and awe from the crowd. As Michelangelo, not the turtle, Michelangelo's David was displayed to the world for the very first time. You know, Jesus is a lot like Michelangelo. Jesus saw in Levi not a list of failures, not a list of offenses, not all the bad stuff he's done. He saw Levi's heart, and he knew what he could become. And this is why names are important. When Levi was a tax collector, he was known as Levi. He was known as being that outcast, the worst of the worst. But after Levi follows Jesus and has his life dramatically changed from that point on, he's known as Matthew, which means a gift of God. So Jesus saw what none of the other people could see. He could see that this Levi was going to become Matthew, was going to become an evangelist, a gift of God, the author of the book of Matthew that we're reading today. That's how God works. He looks and sees beyond what we see to see what we could become, what people could become. And Jesus calls Levi and says, hey, I want you to follow me. You're going to be one of my disciples. And look what happens next, verse 10. It says, As Jesus reclined at the table of the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Here's what happened. Levi, his life is dramatically changed by Jesus. It's dramatically changed. He's he's become a Christian. He's become a believer. His life is completely different. And he's like, what do I do? I know I'm going to throw a party to honor Jesus. Which is natural, right? When Jesus does something big in your life, you want to tell other people about it. But remember, Levi is an outcast. So who do you think Levi's going to invite? Well, as an outcast, uh, he doesn't have many friends. In fact, the friends he does have are other tax collectors and sinners and people that are rejected from society. So he throws a party, invites these sinners to come and and celebrate Jesus. And look what happens. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now we see that term sinners. Sinners do not just mean this general idea of sinners. This means guys like Levi. These are the worst of the worst. These are the notorious sinners. These are the sinners of the big sins, right? Felonies. Big deals. And what's fascinating is I, is I love the fact that Levi throws his party, and they're all sitting down together eating. Because eating, something significant happens when we eat together around a meal. When you invite someone into your home, when you invite them around your, your table, there becomes a feeling of association there becomes this feeling of acceptance. When when you invite me into your home or I invite you into my home and we sit around the table, there's this acceptance of, hey, you're welcomed here. You're okay. And this was so much huger and bigger in Jesus' day. And so as Jesus is sitting around the table eating with these tax collectors and sinners, it's saying he's accepting them. He is identifying with them. Which is outrageous because the Pharisees these are guys who, who are so careful to avoid any hint of impurity. No, we've got to be the Christian part. We can't have any, any darkness around us. We can't be around sinners because we're so righteous and we've got to have the right appearance. And they're morally outraged. They're like, hey, wait a second. Why does your teacher, why does he disregard this idea of holiness? Why does your teacher eat with people Who are outcasts in our society who aren't worthy of being amongst us as believers. Now, this is one of the things I think is important as we read scripture. I always want to warn us. Because it's very easy for us to sit in our pew and and to read scripture and think, ha, man, I'm not like that. We put these rose-colored glasses on. I would never think what the Pharisees thought. I I mean, I I despise that kind of attitude. I would never disregard somebody just because they're a sinner, because they've done something bad. Let me make a bold statement here. I would say that few of us are Pharisees philosophically, but many of us are Pharisees practically. Think about that. None of us would actually say, well, no, I can't be around sinners. They don't belong here. But practically, what does our life show about us? Why is that? Why are we often Pharisees practically? Well, again, our desire when we come to know Christ is we want to we grow in our faith. We want to become more godly. We want to protect ourselves from temptation and sin. We want to ensure that we can raise our kids in a godly environment to guarantee they're going to be good, moral Christians when they grow up. And so, what do we do? We begin to insulate our life from the world. We begin to build Christian bubbles. So, as a Christian, we've got our church, we've got our small group, we've got our Christian schools, we've got our Christian music, we've got our Christian soccer leagues. We've got our Christian friends that we're doing all this stuff with. We've got our our hobbies with other Christians. We go to Christian doctors. We call Christian plumbers. We go to a Christian dentist. Even our dogs are Christian. This is what happens. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. The question is, what is God's desire of us? Because when we get into these holy huddles, you know what we've done? We've removed any influence that we might have on the world around us. We are removing our influence because we are sitting in our Christian circles where everything is safe and easy and comfortable. Now, I know some of you are sitting there saying, Oh, hold up, hold up, Pastor. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. That's not us. That's not us. It's not the same thing for us. But look what the Pharisees said. The Pharisee said, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? A teacher is more than just somebody who passes along knowledge. A teacher refers to someone who teaches by a living example. Jesus is here setting an example for believers For Christians, for disciples, for followers of him, he has set an example. This is what we're supposed to be like. This is what we're supposed to do. Listen, we absolutely need Christians in our lives. We need discipleship. There's a reason why we gather with Christians because when we gather with Christians, it kind of like it fuels us. It fuels us to then go and do what God's called us to do. It encourages us. And when we're struggling, there's, there's, a, there's support and accountability when we're with other Christians. Absolutely. But we've got to understand, like, the way that God designed it is Christians, we're supposed to be like a slingshot for one another. Where we come in and we gather with the Christians and, and we're loaded up. And then we're sent back out. And we come back in and load up. Then we're sent back out. That is the process that we're supposed to look like. In fact, listen, listen to what Jesus says elsewhere in Scripture. One of my favorite passages John 17 this is a night that Jesus is betrayed he's going to go to cross in the very next he's going to go to the cross the very next day and he prays for us he prays for us and you know what he prays he says God I pray that you would not take them out of the world but rather that you would keep them from the evil one he prays and says listen Christians don't take them out of the world let them stay in the world just keep them from evil Matthew uh, 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world. That is who we are. No one takes a candle and hides it under a bushel. I think that represents us being in holy huddles. We're taking our witness, we're taking our faith, and we're making it where it's safe and nobody else is going to get onto it. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand to give light for all to see. And look how Jesus responds. Pharisees say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what he says, verse 12. When Jesus heard it, how did he hear it? I don't know. He's Jesus. He just hears it. He said, those, it is not those who are well who need a physician, for those who are sick. This is just basic logic. When a doctor shows up to a scene of a disaster, the doctor's not looking for the healthy people. No, the doctor is looking for those who are sick, who are hurting, to the people that they can help, the people they can heal. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I didn't come for those who are healthy. I came for those who are sick. And then he speaks to the religious crowd. He quotes from Hosea chapter 6. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Again, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're consumed with their moral obedience. They want to follow all the rules. They want to make sure that they can live their faith out and not be tempted to to not be faithful to God. And the Christian bubble, isn't that the easiest way for us to ensure that we can remove temptation from the world away from us? To keep on the straight and narrow. Yeah, here's what Jesus said. Go reread scripture. Go re- You've missed the big idea. The big idea. Remember, remember when uh, some Pharisees came and said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, which is just as important, is to love your neighbor as yourself. What does God want from us? Obedience or love for people? In fact, later in the book of Matthew, Jesus says again to the Pharisees, Woe to you teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices which means you work so hard on keeping all the moral rules and looking the good Christian part, but you neglect the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're missing the big idea, guys. Go back and read scripture. Because what God wants, his heart's dedicated to him that displays on how we interact with the world around us. So he says in verse 13, he says, learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think what that means is Jesus is saying, I don't have anything to say to those who, are, who think they're righteous. I don't have anything to say to those who think they're a good enough person, who think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person, who think I'm, I'm good enough Jesus says, those people are beyond my help. I didn't come to call the righteous, the people who think they're good enough, the people who say, hey, I'm I'm a good person. No, I came to call those who are broken. Those are the ones that I call to be a part of my kingdom. In fact, I think sometimes about, why do we have to go through hard stuff in life? Suffering and difficulty. You ever thought that maybe we go through some of those hard things because Jesus is trying to strip us from the things that make us feel confidence in ourselves? Maybe he's trying to strip us of our own righteousness, of our own thinking. I'm good enough to say, no, we aren't. We need something bigger than ourselves. So we understand how broken we are that we need a savior. Here's this passage. Here's the summary of it. Here's a big idea today. Is Jesus... His model of ministry was directed not towards the insiders and to the religious, but to the sinners and the outcasts. I'm going to ask permission right now to touch on our toes a little bit. Because I think it is so important for us as Christians, I think it's important for the church to be challenged and to be reminded of the heart of Jesus. His heart is not that we would build these these museums of saints. His heart is not that we would have these elite clubs of religious people, of holy huddles, Christian bubbles that make us feel safe, that make us feel comfortable, that make us feel like, hey, we're good. Look, we have all these good stuff around us. No, Scripture says we are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. I mean, we, we as Christians, we quote John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that verse? Do you believe the verse that God wants to save people? Because I'll tell you what, when we get into our holy huddles, it's almost like we're avoiding sinners. We're avoiding those people. We're afraid of their influence. It's almost like we're condemning them. You're not good enough. You're a danger to me and my faith and my family. You need to be on the outside, not on the inside. But see, here's what I love. John 3.16, we love that verse. But you know what it says in John 3.17? It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, I think few of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we often are practically. So, this is my challenge to you. Look around your circle of influence. Pull out your phone. Look at the last 10 people you texted. Are any of those people non believers? Are you actually investing in any relationship? with somebody who doesn't know Jesus so that you can have a gospel influence on? Are you pursuing any relationship that you can speak truth and light and point them to the verse that we claim to believe, that God so loved the world, that he wants to save them? Are you actually pursuing anybody with a relationship with that purpose? And let me just throw this out. we remind us of this. Pursuing a, a friendship with non-believers has a purpose. We don't just pursue a, a, a friendship with non-believers so we can go and do what they do and be influenced by them. No, we are to be the influencers. We're to be the ones that, that, that point people to a relationship with Jesus. See, there's a story about Oliver Cromwell who uh, ruled England in the 1600s. And uh, they, were, they were having a national crisis where they, uh, there was a, uh, a shortage of currency. Like, what are we going to do? So Cromwell puts a committee together and says, I want you to go look through the land and look for silver. Look for money to get us out of this crisis. And so the committee goes out. They search the entire country. And they come back a month later. And they're like, this is what they said. We searched the empire in vain. The only silver that we have found is in our cathedrals. Statues of saints that have been made by precious silver. You know what Cromwell's response was? Let's melt melt down those saints and put them back into circulation. I think that's what God is looking for from us. That we'd get out of our holy huddles. We'd circulate into the world and make an impact for the kingdom of God. Two points of application and then we're done. Number one, have you surrendered everything to follow Jesus? See, I love the story of Levi. I love the story that Jesus comes and says, Hey, Levi, follow me. Follow me. And in Luke's account, Luke's account says he left everything. He left everything behind to follow Jesus. He left his job. He left his, his way of life. He left his wealth. In fact, put yourself in that situation. You've got some money. You're wealthy. You leave it all behind to follow Jesus. How do you think that's going to impact his wife? How do you think that impacts his kids, his retirement plan, whatever it happens to be? Yet it's through Levi's willingness to surrender everything that Levi becomes Matthew, the evangelist, the disciple, the apostle, the writer of Bible. Not that his life was easy. No, he's eventually going to be martyred for his faith, impaled on a pole because of his faith in Jesus. But his life saw so much happen because he surrendered everything to follow Jesus. I know many of us, we've made commitments to follow Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I'm following you. But the question is, is there anything that you are unwilling leave behind to follow him yeah jesus i'm following you yeah jesus i'm i'm with you except for my money i can't i can't give you my money i can't trust you with my money i'm gonna hold on to this and i'll follow you you with everything else oh jesus i'm gonna follow you except my secret addiction i'm gonna leave this kind of in the back pocket and i'm not gonna talk i'm just gonna hold on to that i'm not gonna follow you with that jesus Oh, Jesus, I'll follow you except with my sexuality because, you know, I get to determine who I sleep with and what I do in behind closed doors. What is it that you are unwilling to leave behind to follow Jesus? I wonder. Sometimes I wonder, how come we don't see more of these dramatic transformations we see in Scripture? How come we don't hear more of the stories of Levi's turning into Matthew? How come we don't see that kind of power in our day? Perhaps it's because this very same thing. We are unwilling to leave everything behind to follow him. Levi became Matthew because he left everything behind, and that is my invitation for you today. What is it that you need to leave behind to fully follow Jesus. Maybe today you need to come to the altar and say, God, I'm going to leave this here. God, I've been walking with you, but I've been holding on to this other thing. Maybe today you just need to come and say, all right, God, I want to experience that transformation from Levi to Matthew. I want to experience all that you have for me. So maybe today you need to sit and say, God, okay, I'm going to surrender this to you. I'm going to surrender it to you. Is it scary? Absolutely. But look at what God could do in us and through us. Look what he did through Levi. Second point of application. Very intentional, very personal. Who are you intentionally pursuing a gospel relationship with? Again, we can come to church and we can hear a message about we need to pursue these gospel relationships. And I'm asking you, who are you actually doing this to? Our names come to your mind? When you came in today, we gave you a couple of note cards. Here here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to start thinking about people in your life that may not know Jesus, may not be walking with him, would you write down those names of saying these are people in my life that I actually have the ability to try and pursue a relationship with for gospel influence? That I can speak the kingdom of God and the truth and the power of Jesus to this person. You're like, well, you give me two note cards? How come? Here's what I want you to do. We did this a couple years ago uh, in the start of 2020. and uh, Then some, I don't know, pandemic came and kind of disrupted us. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write Three names down. People that you can pursue with the gospel. I want you to do it twice. I want you to write one of them, and I want you to keep that someplace that you can remember to pray for those people. Because I tell you what, if you remember to pray for those people, your mind is going to be looking for opportunities to say, how can I share the gospel with this person? So I'm asking you, number one, write those names down for you and put that in a spot that you're going to see that. And number two, I'm going to ask you to turn those names back in, write those on the second sheet, and put them in the offering. Give them to us. And I'll tell you, me and Jake, we did this in 2020. We're going to make this commitment again. If you give us some names, we're going to pray for those every Monday morning. Jake and I, we meet every Monday. Sometimes it waits in the afternoon. Sometimes it doesn't happen until Tuesday. Depends on what I've got going on. But Jake and I, we get together every week, and we're going to make this commitment to pray for these names every single week. Imagine, imagine, imagine. Imagine the impact we can make in our city. Imagine the impact we can make in people's lives if we actually took this serious and said, you know, I'm going to pursue some people intentionally that I can hopefully share Jesus with, invite them to church, invite them to hear these things. Now, I know some of you are like, hey, I'm kind of looking at am I don't know who... I don't really have anybody. There's nobody in my life I can think about. Great. Let me give you some encouragement on how to find some people you can pursue. Look into your circle of influence. You got a job? I bet there's people in your workplace that don't know Jesus. (laughs) My workplace is kind of difficult, but you know, I pray for Jake. (laughs) Look at your workplace. Look at your school. Look at your neighborhood. What hobbies are you interested in? Who are the people that God has put in your circle of influence? And you're like, why? Well, I still don't know. Great. You don't know somebody? Here's what, you, here's what I encourage you to do go join a mentor program, go volunteer somewhere in the community. Again, and I would say this, I would say, as a pastor, most of what I do is with other Christians. Most of, so I've had to be very intentional to say, how am I pursuing uh, people that don't know Christ? I've done it, I, 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 I've told this story before, uh, uh, there was a crazy teacher, one of my kids had a crazy teacher, Mr. Hernandez, crazy guy, and I tell you what, every week he'd be like, hey, could you come in for two hours and, and hang out with some kids, and I'm like, I got so much other stuff to do. But I did it. Why? Because I was pursuing a relationship with Mr. Hernandez so that I could have a gospel influence on him. My wife and I have been very intentional. As our kids have gotten into sports programs, we're going to go and be engaged with that. Why? Because we want to be around those coaches. We want to be around those students. We want to be around their families so we can have a gospel influence. My current guy right now, I like going to Northtown Coffeehouse. And there happens to be a guy who kind of runs the morning shift, his name's Alfonso. I go twice a week. And every time I go in, I'm asking Alfonso about life, I'm asking about his son, I'm asking about work, because I want to have this influence in his life. And I'm praying that I'm gonna have the opportunity to share the gospel with Alfonso. Who is it for you? And if you don't have somebody, maybe instead of writing a name on the paper, write, hey, this is an area I'm gonna pursue. I'm gonna try and volunteer at this place, I'm going to try and, 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 and pursue this person. And then you're like, okay, I got some people listed now. Now, wh- now, how do I do this? What do I do? Very simply, you pursue a friendship with them. You take an interest into their life. You take an interest into their story. Hey, tell me what's going on in your life. Tell me what's happening. What's happening with your kids? What's happening uh, in this or that? What's going on? You find things you have in common. You find hobbies. Hey, guess what? We all like the manners who are going to the second round of the playoffs. Praise God for that. Invite them to come watch a baseball game with you. Invite them to come watch a Seahawks game with you. You'll enjoy that. I promise you, you'll enjoy that. You'll enjoy that more than them. Meet them over coffee. Or maybe be like Matthew and say, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? Come to my house for dinner. We'll have some conversations, we'll get to know one another. Uh, then we're pursuing this relationship. Okay, and this is where I get anxiety. Well, how do I share the gospel? Because sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to say. But like, I don't have all the answers. And here, here's, here's, here's a cool thing. Like, you don't have to know the four spiritual laws uh, 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 or anything like that. You don't have to have all the answers to all of the God questions. All you have to do Tell them how Jesus has affected your life. In fact, I've shared this before. Uh, Jeff Eorg is the the president of the Golden Gate Theological Seminary. And I remember going to a a seminar once, and he was talking, and he said, hey, there are four things that happen in everybody's life. And these are the ways that when you hear these things, these become gospel conversation initiators. That when you're in a friendship with somebody and you're just living life with them and you're loving them, but guess what? When one of these things happen, when you hear them talk about one of these things, you have an opportunity to say, "Hey, let me tell you how Jesus met this need." Those four things are we all experience: things break, relationships struggle, people die, and health fails. As we pursue friendships with people, we keep our ears open to any of these circumstances. And we have our opportunity to say, hey, let me tell you, you're going through this, let me tell you how Jesus helped me through it. Struggling with your marriage? Struggling with parenting? Man, let me tell you how Jesus has helped me through that. Grieving a loss? Man, let me tell you how Jesus carried me through that grieving process. Struggling with depression and fear? Man, let me tell you how Jesus met me in the middle of that. You feel like you're losing control of your health, or something that you have no control over, man. Let me tell you about the God who's sovereign over all things, that is working things out for, for our good and for His glory. This is where you have to have the opportunity to say, "Let me tell you how Jesus has met me here." Here as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the answer. Are we pointing people to Him? It's awkward. It's challenging. We're not going to do it perfect, But guess what? <laughs> if Levi's cha- life was changed only because Jesus said, come and follow me, I don't think that means we have to have it all figured out. I think we can be, I think that means that we can fumble through it. And God's strong enough powerful enough to work through our feeble attempts, to work through our mess-ups, to draw people into a relationship with him and to change their life. Because I'll tell you what, when I think about our city, there are thousands of people. There are thousands of people that are bound for hell. And if we aren't willing to do anything about it, aren't we just condemning them for that? Now we are his hands he was a friend of sinners. He set an example for us that we get to be his hands and feet to point people to the life-changing truth of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I feel pretty convicted today. I want to be a part of that. I want to see Levi's turn into Matthew. I want to see the power of God transform lives and transform people I care about, transform our city. Let's pray.